Hello, everyone. Hey, guys. Welcome back to the Secret Syllabus podcast. The Secret Syllabus is a production of the Female Quotient and iHeartRadio and co-produced by the Female Quotient and Wonder Media Network. I'm Katie Tracy. And I'm Hannah Ashton. This episode is all about voting. And before we get started, we just wanted to mention that this episode isn't meant to sway you in any direction. We simply are wanting to talk about the experiences around Pollux that we are having on campus and how college students can be engaged and informed voters. But Katie, I would love to start with you because I'm curious, as an international student, what have you witnessed as you watch America during this election year? Yes. So I'll say this first. I'm an international student, so I'm not a U.S. citizen, but even from my perspective, I know this is very important. It has implications for my visa status as a student in the States. It has implications for international relations. And this election is being followed at a global scale, I can assure that. Even from the Philippines right now, I, along with many of my friends from other countries, have been keeping up with the highlights and news. What about you? Yeah, so this will be my first presidential election I will be voting in. Um, And at first, like when creating my voting plan, I was really overwhelmed just because there were a few different options. You know, you can do the mail-in, I could drive home on election day, I could drive home and do early voting. But it actually worked out that in the middle of October, I was able to be home for the first day of early voting in Tennessee. And so I was able to walk in one morning and it was at our local mall and it was the busiest my mall there has ever been. Lines were wrapped around the inside and outside of the mall. Like my mom, who has early voted before, obviously said she's never seen it like this. And we actually had to leave because I had to get back for an online class. But then I came back later in the afternoon. Line was a little bit shorter and I got to vote. And it was a really cool experience, honestly. And I'm, I'm really thankful that I got the opportunity to do it in person. Wow. We love that. And the final presidential debate was hosted at Belmont, your school. Yes, this was so cool. At first, we didn't know if it was going to happen. I mean, they told us a year ago, um, like last October, that we were hosting it. So we've been known, we've known about it for a while, but then, you know, all these things came up. Didn't know if it was going to be online or just canceled, but it ended up happening and it was a really cool experience. Like even though most students couldn't go unless you were a volunteer, it was just awesome to have that kind of energy on campus. Obviously, there was also a lot of safety precautions, like starting weeks ago, they had fencing put up all around the school. You had to show your ID just to park. Uh, media were always walking around and sometimes you couldn't get into certain buildings or, you know, if you've been online, if you've been in person class, it was kind of difficult. Some got moved. And something I thought was really interesting is they actually moved the freshmen who had dorms near where the debate was actually being held. They moved them for two nights into a Gaylord Opryland Hotel, which is a really nice hotel here in Nashville. So they kind of all got a little mini vacation, if you could say. My roommate and I actually drove by the perimeter of our school uh, the night it was happening. And we got to just witness like the crowds of people that had signs and were just walking around and trying to like, you know, get a glimpse of whoever and see all the security. But I think overall, the debate, I would say was a success. It seemed a lot more composed and more presidential. And I, I was proud of my school for the night for sure. I would be proud too if it was hosted at my school, but that campus energy sounds amazing. It makes me miss being on a campus so much because I've been stuck at home for the past 200 days. Anyways, speaking of college campuses, today we're calling in with Christian, our on-campus correspondent, to check in on her first year at Harvard University, especially during the voting season. Hey, Christian. 
Hey, you're nearly halfway through your first semester of college. Yeah, it's honestly kind of crazy to think that like a month has already passed from since I like moved in on campus and I'm kind of excited to like have a break, but it's also kind of crazy to think that I like made it through almost my first semester already. So lots of emotions, I would say. I'm sure. And I feel like the semester is just flying by because we don't have any breaks. So it's just like pushing hard towards the end. But this episode is all about politics. And with the presidential election around the corner, we would love to know what's happening on your campus right now surrounding politics. Like, do you feel it's a matter of conversation with your friends? Or did you or anyone you know watch the presidential debate? The presidential election is definitely a very pressing hot topic on campus. Um, I actually personally didn't know the debate was happening like until a couple of hours before, but there were kids like had like set up projectors in the yard and there were like multiple projector setups going all around of people watching the debate. There are different like the different kind of political organizations on campus have been like pushing stuff out to their social medias. And I think everyone is just super tuned in to what's going on. So it's definitely being talked about a lot. And yeah, I think I think as, as soon as we get closer, it's just going to be like more and more buzz around it. So it's definitely something that's being talked about. That's really great to hear. And how has Harvard been encouraging students to vote? So there's this um, organization called the Harvard Votes Challenge, and they've been partnering with different um, athletic teams and different clubs that are like pledging for all of their members to vote or to register to vote. And so that's their like whole mission is to get as many eligible Harvard students as possible to be registered and then to actually vote on election day. So that's definitely something that's really big. Like they have different members, like if there's like students in the Harvard Votes Challenge, like organization, like in class, they've been doing like little presentations, like, Hey guys, this is like we're Harvard Vote Challenge. This is kind of like what we're about. And so that's been like the main way that they're trying to get people to vote. And that's like all student led. So a lot of the kind of efforts like around politics and everything are very student led. And that's mostly where it's like all coming from. That's really cool. And it's your first time voting. So how are you feeling about it? Do you have a voting plan in place? Yes. So I'm having to do an absentee ballot um, because I'm currently out of state and like I won't have enough time to go back home before the voting like voting day. Um, So that's like my voting plan. And I guess it's exciting to be politically civically engaged, but I have like voted before in like state and local elections. So I'm kind of familiar with like the process, but this is like the first big one. So I guess that's like a a good milestone. (laughs) Well, thank you, Christian, for sharing and for coming on. And we will talk to you again soon. Great. See you guys soon. We had the opportunity to be able to talk to Stacey Abrams in September, and she is the perfect guest for this episode because Stacey Abrams is an American politician, lawyer, voting rights activist, entrepreneur, nonprofit CEO, and author who served in the Georgia House of Representatives from 2007 to 2017. She was the first Black woman and first Georgian to deliver a response to the State of the Union. Stacey Abrams launched Fair Fight to ensure every American has a voice in the U.S. election system through programs such as Fair Fight 2020, an initiative to fund and train voter protection teams in 20 battleground states. In 2019, she launched Fair Count to ensure accuracy in the 2020 census and greater participation in civic engagement and the Southern Economic Advancement Project, a public policy initiative to broaden economic power and build equity in the South. It is an honor to be able to interview her, so we won't keep you any longer. Here's Stacey Abrams. Welcome, Stacey Abrams. We are so thrilled to have you on the show. 
Can you start us off by taking us back to the first time you voted as an 18-year-old while you were a student at Spelman College? How did it feel to vote for the first time? So I'm actually going to talk about the second time I voted only because I know I voted in the primary, but it was a primary during a time where it was just Democrats. But I think the, the time that sticks in my memory was when I voted for president in 1992, long, long ago, before many of you were even imaginations. But <laughs> it was an amazing thing. I'd grown up with parents who used to take us with them to protest and they took us with them to vote. I, I joke about the fact that because I'm the second of six kids, we looked like make way for ducklings as we trailed out of the voting booth with my parents. But I remember what it felt like to be the person making the decision. I'd spent my time at Spelman, I was 17 when I got there. So I was registering voters before I was old enough to vote. And when I finally had that opportunity to cast my ballot and to make what seemed to me at the moment an incredibly important choice about the direction of our country, I just remember being so filled with pride. You know, it's like the first time you get to drive, you're the one doing it. It's not, you know, there's no one telling you what to do. You get to make the decisions and you get the one to, to lead. And that's what I got to do. I love hearing how you found this passion even before you were 18. And even though I'm turning 21, this will be the first presidential election I'll be able to vote in, which is exciting, but also stressful this year, I'm feeling. So do you think engaging in politics as a young person in 2020 is different from when you were in college? Yes and no. I mean, you've got to remember in 1992, that was the year of the Rodney King verdict. It was the first public example of videotaped police brutality. And in that year, it, the attack by the police happened to Rodney King in 91, but the exoneration of every police officer happened in 1992. And so the civil unrest, the anger, the pain was visceral. But what was different was that it dissipated. By the time we got to the presidential election in November, there were those of us who'd been involved in the protest and in the struggle who were still talking about it, but you didn't have the sustained galvanization. You didn't have this national conversation. In fact, the conversation had turned against many of the issues we were talking about. And so I, I would juxtapose 92 with 2020 in this way. It is a presidential year, but the power possessed by young people in this year is so much greater than the power we possessed in that year. Young people were still very instrumental in the election of Bill Clinton, but in a very different way, we were in the midst of an economic downturn. You had civil unrest. Civil unrest had, had abated somewhat. And I think what you all face in this moment as young people is this triple crisis of a healthcare crisis, uh, economic collapse, and this racial reckoning. But you also have immense power because if you combine Gen Y and Gen Z, your ability to sway elections is so much greater. And the diversity of the communities that you represent mean that the capacity to drive change is just greater. And so I, I would say it is certainly more stressful because of the omnipresent challenges that you face. But I think the opportunity is also greater because you have the capacity to organize yourselves in ways we didn't. Like we, we were still celebrating call waiting when I was 18. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think your ability to use social media, but more importantly, just to use the connectivity you've built because of the crises you all have endured is just an instrumental part of how you can shape the next decade of change. 
I totally agree. We both, I think Hannah and I feel the same, but there's a lot of pressure right now. We have so much information coming at us and it's intense, but at the same time, we really want to convert all of this into action and we've never felt more empowered to do so than at this time. Switching gears a bit, Fair Fight is an organization you created in 2018 to fight voter suppression and create a more fair voting process. What motivated you to start this organization? As I've said, I've been involved in the conversation of voting rights for most of my adult life, in fact, before I was an adult. And it came about because my parents were teenage activists during the civil rights movement. My dad was arrested registering people to vote in Hattiesburg, Mississippi when he was 14. So I came about this honestly. And I don't divorce the protest side of my family's history from the voting side. I see them as part of a continuum. My responsibility when I ran for governor in 2018 was to do the work of galvanizing and turning out voters so they could own their power to shape the state they wanted. When I didn't get elected, my responsibility was to make certain that the powers that be that prevented them from speaking aloud, I I can't say for certain that they would have voted for me, but I can say for certain that thousands of people were denied the right to vote. And so fair fight for me is the continuation of my obligation. I may not hold the title, but that doesn't relieve me of the responsibility. And that responsibility includes making sure that every vote can be cast and every vote can be counted. And the way I try to do this is I try to meet people where they are. Fair Fight is the largest and I think the most effective way to lift up this conversation about voter suppression so that people know it's not just Georgia, it's a national phenomenon, it's a national crisis but I've also written a book about it. I have a new movie coming out, a new documentary coming out about it, trying to make certain that people understand that I care about voting, not because of the act of voting itself, but because of what voting represents. Our ability to create change, our ability to trans, to your point, Katie, about taking your power to create change, protest is how we declare our needs. Voting is how we make those needs real because we pick the people who represent us in our government and who are responsible, but it's also how we fire people who didn't do their jobs. And in my mind, Fair Fight is instrumental in helping situate us so that we have the ability to use our power as citizens to shape our future. I would love if you could explain a little bit more about how voter suppression happens in a democratic process. Voter suppression refers to discouraging or preventing people who are otherwise eligible from casting their votes. And let's let's be clear. Political parties are always going to try to convince you to vote for your their guy and against someone else's guy. I don't care about that. It's when you try to prevent me from using my right to vote at all. That's voter suppression. And we have to understand voter suppression has been a part of our nation since its inception. Our Constitution basically said white men who own property could vote. If you were black, you were subhuman. If you were Native American, you were invisible. In fact, Native Americans didn't become citizens of the United States until 1924. Women were told to be silent until the 19th Amendment in 1920. And the the Naturalization Act of 1790 basically said only white people of good character could immigrate to the country after 1790. So we've had a long history of saying to people, you aren't good enough to participate in our democracy. If you fast forward to today, voter suppression looks a lot different than it did before. It used to be the law saying you just can't vote. Today, it's using the law to make it too complicated and to push people out of the process. And there are three things that happen. 
It's making it difficult to register and stay on the rolls. It's making it difficult to cast your ballot and making it difficult to get your ballot counted. For young people, this manifests itself in rules about when you can register to vote. So those states that won't let you register until you turn 18, as opposed to states that will let you do it when you're 17, so that if you're turning 18 by the election, you can participate. It's the likelihood of getting kicked off the rolls because you're going off to school and there are you know, complicated rules about where you can register. When it comes to being able to cast your ballot, it's voter ID laws in states like Wisconsin and Georgia, Texas, that won't allow you to use your student ID, usually the only form of ID you have that says you can't use your student ID. Or if you look at what happened in New Hampshire, it's passing laws to basically say we don't want students to be heard, even though you spend nine months out of the year in those locations when we're not in COVID times. And then it's shutting down polling places on campuses. In Florida, they shut down polling places by law to force students not to be able to vote where, where they lived. We've been able to challenge some of those things, but that's it. And then the last is that when you vote by mail, young people have the hardest time actually getting their ballots and their ballots are five times more likely to be rejected. And so voter suppression happens all along that continuum. But when you know what they're doing, you have a better opportunity to fight back and to force them to let you cast your ballot because you are just as entitled to be heard as anyone else. I'm really glad you shared this. I don't think a lot of people know about this. I certainly didn't. And if this is a systemic issue, then is there anything we as citizens can do about it? Absolutely. Number one, it's knowing about it. I, I spend a lot of time talking about voter suppression. I didn't discover voter suppression, but you know, and after my election, because I made the choice to publicly declare that voter suppression was at work, it helped me lift up the issue in ways I don't think it, it, it had been before. And, you know, it, it's Breitbart and Fox News really hate me, but, you know, it's, it's okay. In part because part of my responsibility was to say, yes, the legal system said this can happen, but we need to look at the laws. If the laws are wrong, we need to push back against them. And that's not a partisan issue. I may have been a Democrat running, but the same laws, the same suppression impacts you, whether you're a Democrat or Republican or an independent. And when you break the machinery of democracy, you break it for everyone. And so my responsibility and, and the way we can all fight back is one, understanding what it is. In my book, Our Time Is Now, I talk about in much more detail, much more academic detail, but still accessible so that people really get what's going on. Because once you know it, then you can start to ask your state legislators to pass better laws. You can work with your county elections officials. We tend to take for granted these things just kind of move and we think about it every two years or every four years, but you can get involved now. And in particular, we need young people to sign up to be election workers, to work the polls. The average poll worker is around mid-60s. They are very susceptible to COVID. And so a lot of states are going to see their polling places shut down if we can't get more young people to sign up to be poll workers. It's a paid gig. And so it's worth it because you can be part of the way we stop the closure of polling places, which blocks hundreds of thousands of people from being able to cast their ballots. And then the last thing is you can run for office yourself. You don't have to wait. The best people to make the choices for you are the people who understand your life, understand your challenges. And particularly for young people, being in the arena sometimes seems a bit corrupt. But I will tell you, it only gets better when good people get in the arena. It only gets better when young people's voices aren't yelling from the outside, 
but are yelling from the outside and answered from the inside. And so those are some of the ways you can really tackle this challenge. Those are great tactical tips on how we as individuals can get involved and do something and feel like we're moving forward. I'd also love to hear what are the best ways to motivate our friends to vote? I feel like in recent years, the FOMO of social media has created definitely helps, but it can be easy to also not vote out of maybe the hassle of getting to the polls. I think it's important to first acknowledge the limits of voting. Part of what happens is we build this notion that voting is the solution to all problems. It's not. But it is the only solution we have in a democracy that actually can guarantee progress and change. Protest is how we declare what we need. But the reason you protest is you're trying to put pressure on those who are making decisions to make better decisions. Well, the other pressure point is voting them in or voting them out. And so I begin conversations about voting, not by saying you should do it because it's your moral duty. You should do it because it's patriotic. You should do it because if you don't, they're going to continue to screw you over. Voting is how we get the things we need. And silence guarantees that no one's going to hear you. And so when you're silent and you don't vote, that gives the people in power permission to ignore you. Voting doesn't guarantee that they'll hear you, but it gets you much closer. And it guarantees that they have to pay attention. I also try to connect the dots. We tend to think about voting on this sort of macro level, but we need to think about the fact that if you care about environmental action, it's a question of does your county zone to allow power plants and contaminating places to go into poor communities. That's something you can change by voting on the county level. If you're concerned about criminal justice issues, if you vote for the district attorney who says, I'm going to put everyone in prison versus the district attorney who says, I'm going to use my power to allow first offenders to get help instead of going to jail, then vote for the district attorney. You think the sentencing disparities between black and brown and white offenders is too much? Vote on judges. And so it's making sure we start to connect the dots, especially for your age group, connect the dots between the issues that matter and the change you want. The linkage is voting. And so one, be honest. Two, be specific. And then three, make a plan. Telling people they need to vote is irrelevant if you haven't walked them through or if they haven't figured out how to do it. Vote.org is an amazing website, as well as allinforvoting.com. You can go to one of those two websites and you can actually figure out what your opportunities to vote are. As young people, depending on where you live, to your point, Hannah, about how hard it can be, it's hard because we're often trying to figure it out on the fly. But if we use these resources, I encourage everyone, make a plan to vote. I've made a plan for June. I got my absentee ballot, filled it out, did my research, and then the envelope was sealed shut. So I was legally not permitted to return my absentee ballot. But I had a plan, so I knew I could go and vote in person. And that was a critical thing because otherwise I could have been stymied and they could have ignored my voice. Vote early, so make a plan and vote early. And that helps more people actually get through the process. But to your point about social media, it's also sharing your plan. To use FOMO, it's about talking about, here's my plan to vote. What's your plan to vote? And it may seem you know cheesy, but it is a critical way to create the change. And if there has ever been a year where we know it matters who's in charge, this is that year. What you said about silence also was really powerful because in college, I've been able to learn so much from people by starting these conversations. I think in my experience in college, though, conversations about politics can get very passionate and sometimes divisive. 
which I don't think it should be, like you mentioned. But what tips do you have for people who want to discuss the upcoming elections but don't know how to talk about it with friends who may not be politically aligned with them? One is that I don't believe conversation is the place for conversion. Often we go into these conversations trying to make the other person agree with us. That's not the point. The point is to learn. My job as minority leader, I was the Democratic leader in the House of Representatives for seven years. There was not a single year where I had enough people to get anything done on my own. (laughs) Everything I did required that I work with people who were diametrically opposed to me on most ideological issues. And I used to say that, you know, being minority leader was Latin for losing well. But here's what I learned. Part of my job wasn't to try to convince them that they agreed with me about the fundamental underlying belief systems that we held. We didn't. But I could convince them to work with me on the things we did think mattered. And so I, you know, one of my favorite examples is that I worked with the Tea Party on environmental issues. And the way we did it was I believe that climate change is real. They believe property values are real. And so we were able to work together to block legislation that would have created harm to the environment because it would have cost them money. And I thought it would cost us lives. We didn't have to agree on the reason to agree on the way. And that's what we have to do in these conversations. If you go into a conversation about politics, trying to convince someone, one, that they're wrong, and more importantly, two, that you're right, you're going to lose. But if you go in trying to learn what they believe and why they believe it, then you create common space to figure out where do you agree? And you can agree to agree on things and you can agree to disagree on other things. But the most important thing is that you're having the conversation and you're enlarging your understanding of who they are and what they see as the future. Mm, That's so good. And I know for many college students and more generally Americans, they can struggle with backlash in their home lives if they are looking to vote for someone that maybe their loved ones oppose. Do you have any advice for how people can navigate that tension of wanting to vote or share their opinions, but not upset their loved ones? So uh, there's a great show. I, I love television. It makes me incredibly happy. There is this fantastic episode of One Day at a Time from this fourth season. It's an animated episode. So I think it's the last episode they did where Lin-Manuel Miranda is one of the voices on the episode. And it's this fantastic navigation of exactly that issue. How do you talk to your family when you may not share common belief? And the reality is not believing the same things politically does not make that person a bad person. And it doesn't mean that you can't engage, but you have to engage in a way that respects their right to be wrong, (laughs) in your opinion. Uh, But it also is an important way to understand what motivates them. My, My siblings and I, we all luckily agree, but I have cousins who do not agree with me on some political issues. I don't dismiss our family connection because we don't share the same political connection. I learn very quickly which ones we can talk about and who I can talk to. And sometimes you just have to talk about the weather um, because sometimes, you know, res- you know, silence again, may be the better part of valor in that instance, because it's not about making them so angry that you can't love one another. It's about creating the space that if you need to create change, you can. As we start to wrap up, we wanted to ask for those that say my vote doesn't mean anything or my vote won't make a difference. What do you have to say to them? Every vote matters. If it didn't matter, they wouldn't be working so hard to stop you from being heard. But here's how to think about it. We're tackling diseases in our country. 
the disease of racism, the disease of COVID, the disease of economic inequity, the disease that is ravaging our environment. We have so many of these diseases and voting is not a magic pill. It's chemotherapy. It is a regimen and it works not because you do it once and you say, I'm done. It works because you do it again and again and again. I think about it if you play a sport or if you're involved in any kind of competitive activity, you don't do it once and think I'm great. You have to do it again and again and again to get better and better and to see the change you need. And the same thing is true with voting. We have to stop lying about voting being some magic pill. It's not. It's it's a treatment. And it's the treatment to the injustice. It's a treatment to the challenges. But that means we've got to keep taking it, keep taking that vote, keep taking those pills. And we've got to do the other things that the doctor tells us to do that we don't want to, like participating after the election. We've got to do the things that we find the fun part, like protesting. But we've also got to do the really wonky, annoying part of going into that voting booth, of doing our research, of understanding. And if we start to treat it as a process rather than an event, then we understand that voting works because when voting is a process, things get better. And here's the last thing I'll say. I know it gets better because my great-great-grandparents were slaves. My great-grandparents were sharecroppers. My grandparents were cooks. My parents were working poor. And I got to be the first black woman in American history to stand for governor. I got damned close. Excuse my language. The reality is progress gets made. It is hard. It is mean. There are setbacks, but progress does happen. And because progress happens, I'm not going to stop fighting and I'm not going to stop voting because I'm going to get it done. I have chills right now. Wow. Thank you so much for being on the show and informing all of us, not only of how to get our voices heard, but also why every voice matters. And for listeners, be sure to follow Stacey Abrams on Instagram at Stacey Abrams and check out her new film, All In, The Fight for Democracy on Amazon Prime Video. Thank you again. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Congratulations and best of luck. So, Katie, what was your takeaway from that amazing interview? Stacey Abrams is a role model. I feel like as a student, it's easy for me to just shy away from issues that are controversial, to change the topic when things get heated and seem very divisive. But Stacey reminds me that there are ways to navigate these conversations with grace, to respond with composure that can encourage more productive discussions about issues we care about. It's why we brought them up in the first place, right? So we just have to remember to treat it like a discussion, not a debate. That's my takeaway. What about you, Hannah? That's so good. And I learned a lot from this episode. One thing Stacey stated that was so true is that we think our voice only matters on the big scale, aka the presidential election. However, our voice matters and is sometimes better heard at the lower levels. It's our duty not to just stay informed on Trump and Biden's agendas, but to be informed on how our local mayors, governors, and legislators are hurting or helping our community. Because in the counties and in the cities that we live in, we are directly affected by those decisions. And so it makes sense for us to also want to be informed and have a say at the local level. Yes. Well, we hope this inspired you listeners to go out and vote, figure out what you got to do. And we are your hosts, Katie. You can find me at Aloha Katie X on Instagram. And I'm Hannah. You can find me at Miss Hannah Ashton on Instagram. The secret syllabus was created by the Female Quotient in partnership with iHeartMedia and co-produced by the Female Quotient and Wonder Media Network. 
Female Potion is committed to advancing equality and elevating women from college campuses to the corner office. You can find out more at www.thefemalequotient.com. See you after class.